Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. Our essay this week is called My Flannel Graph Jesus. It's a guest essay by Debbie Thomas. Debbie Thomas holds an MFA in creative writing from The Ohio State University. Her essays have appeared in the Kenyon Review, River Teeth, a journal of nonfiction narrative, and Slate magazine. She lives in the San Francisco Bay Area with her family. The essay is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, March the 9th, 2014, the first Sunday in Lent. The first time I heard the story of Jesus' temptation, I was fidgeting in the Sunday school classroom of a tiny New England church. My teacher, a grandmotherly woman in a hairnet and beige pantyhose, had the Judean wilderness stretched across the flannel graph board in front of our first grade class. At the far left of the fuzzy felt landscape, an innocuous-looking devil, scrawny, red-suited, and fork-tailed, stooped in the sand, reaching for a loaf-shaped stone. To his right, a supremely undisturbed Jesus towered over the landscape in a pristine white robe. His finger pointed reprovingly at his tempter. As you can see, my teacher told us as she gestured towards the figure in red, that pesky devil never stood a chance against the Lord Jesus. Do you know why? Because Jesus knew exactly who he was. He knew he was the Almighty Son of God. So the devil couldn't bother him. She paused, looking us over as we tugged at our itchy Sunday dresses and clip-on ties. Let me tell you what this story means, she said finally. It means that as long as we know exactly who we are, as long as we trust in Jesus and believe we're his children, we will always defeat the devil too. Do you understand? Yes, we said in unison, impatient for the Kool-Aid and cookies awaiting us at the end of the hour. We understand. Old lessons die hard. In the Christian tradition that raised me, Jesus' humanity was something to skirt around, something we affirmed in our creeds, to be sure, but something we avoided examining too closely. Yes, of course the Incarnation was real. Of course Jesus was tempted in every way possible in order that he could sympathize with us in our weaknesses. But to linger too long over what his enfleshed life might have looked, smelled, tasted, and felt like? To consider the possibility that Jesus might have wrestled with who he was and what his mission entailed? Well, that would be unseemly. It would be destabilizing. It would be, God forbid, heretical. Yes, it, yet it's precisely the appalling messiness of humanity, both Jesus's and our own, that we grapple with during Lent. We begin on Ash Wednesday, acknowledging via the imposition of ashes that we will surely die that our bodies will fail us no matter how cleverly we attempt to preserve them with medicine, 
exercise, cosmetics, or mindfulness. From that austere beginning, we venture into the wilderness like Elijah, like Moses, like the Israelites after their exodus from Egypt. With ashes on our foreheads and mortality on our minds, we begin a hazardous journey inward, a journey to explore who Jesus is, who we are, and what our shared humanity requires of us now. The Jesus we encounter in the first week of our journey is a 30-year-old carpenter who has hardly the strength left to stand, much less to tower over the withered landscape. As the writer of Matthew's Gospel puts it, this Jesus is famished after 40 days of fasting and testing. Physically, he's at the end of his strength. Socially, he's alone and friendless. Spiritually, he's struggling to consolidate his identity as the glow of his baptism recedes into a hazy pre-wilderness past. Cue the devil. Not a benign fool in red tights, but a sinister exploiter of weakness, a brilliant questioner. Can you be like God? was the savvy question he posed to Adam and Eve in the lushness of the first garden. Can you take hold of a higher wisdom, a keener knowledge, a more divine humanity? Now he comes to the exhausted Son of God, a clever inversion of those primordial questions ready on his lips. Can you be fully human? Can you abdicate power, exercise restraint, work in obscurity? Can you truly bear the terror of what it means to be weak and mortal and human? <clears throat> I have to confess that well into my teens and early adult years, I didn't see what the big deal was with the devil's taunts. Jesus was starving, after all. Who would have cared, really, if he zapped a rock or two into bread? God was supposed to be Jesus' protector, after all, an omnipotent commander of legions of angels. Why would it have been sinful for a son to call on the protective powers of his father? Jesus was the rightful ruler of all the earth's kingdoms, after all. Who would have had the right to protest if he simply demanded the worship that was his due? Many years have passed since my six-year-old self sat in front of my teacher's muscular Jesus. I understand now, as I did not when I was a child, that the Incarnation must have involved genuine struggle, that Jesus' vocation must have come to him piecemeal, laced with ambivalence. Why else would the devil have targeted his humanity as he did? <clears throat> and yet, even as I'm grateful to believe in a God who knows human frailty, I still ache sometimes for that old Jesus on flannel graph. I ache for his divinity, the certainty of it, the mighty, magical promise of it, to overwhelm his humanity like a bright and reassuring halo. Why? Because embracing Jesus' full humanity requires that I confront 
my own. If those 40 days in the wilderness was a time of self-creation, a time for Jesus to decide who he was and how he would live out his calling, then here is what the Son of God chose. Deprivation over power. Vulnerability over rescue. Obscurity over honor. At every instance in which he could have reached for the certain, the extraordinary, and the miraculous, he reached instead for the precarious, the quiet, and the mundane. There's nothing easy about affirming Jesus' choices. Indeed, sometimes I find them appalling. How often I prefer the miraculous intervention, the dramatic rescue, the long-awaited vindication. How often I find myself echoing the demands of the tempter. Feed me, deliver me, prove yourself to me. How often I find the restraint of God offensive. But here I am, still, on a journey that will culminate a few weeks from now in the great miracle, in the great paradox of Easter. As this week's reading from Romans reminds us, Jesus' free gift to humanity is rooted not in his power, but in his sacrifice. This is the scandal the devil couldn't overcome. After all, in his acts of power, the miraculous healings, exorcisms, mass feedings, and resurrections, how many people did Jesus save? A hundred? Five hundred? Maybe two thousand? Not even the whole of Galilee. But in his abdication, his vulnerability, his restraint, in other words, in his quiet willingness to bear a cross, how many did he save? He saved the world. A guest essay by Debbie Thomas, My Flannel Graph Jesus. For books this week, I review a new novel by Dave Eggers. <clears throat> it's called The Circle. New York, Alfred Knopf, 2013, 491 pages. In his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, Neil Postman contrasted the dystopian futures envisioned by Huxley and Orwell. He writes, Orwell feared that what we fear will ruin us. Huxley feared that what we desire will ruin us. The novelist Dave Eggers sides with Huxley. In his view, we ought to fear the Frankenstein we've created and loved. Instead, we've hyped it ad nauseum. Except for a few clear-eyed truth-tellers, most of us gladly drink the Kool-Aid. May Holland, a young woman two years out of college, is Eggers' protagonist's case in point. May left her job in an old-school utility company, a gulag that actually served a social purpose, to work at a company called The Circle in Silicon Valley, the most important and admired internet company in the world, 
the only company that really mattered at all. The Circle campus and everything about it is a Google-esque corporate utopia. My God, it's heaven, she gushed. There's everything anyone could want for work or play, including dorms where workers sleep. The Circle is led by the three wise men. May's best friend Annie is a senior executive and part of the Gang of Forty at the top of this pyramid. The more you read and learn about Dave Eggers' The Circle, the more you realize that it's a case study of a cult. Its mantra is total transparency, by all and for all. After all, Circle is a community. The Circle must be made whole, closed, and completed. And so the core beliefs of the company, appropriately enough written in all caps, Secrets are lies. Sharing is caring. Privacy is theft. Nothing should ever be deleted, which isn't a problem anyway, because the powerful technologies of the circle make that impossible. May never wanted to work anyplace else. There are some truth-tellers in her life, especially her former boyfriend Mercer and her parents, but there are underachievers who are unenlightened about the sizzle that is the circle. After all, they're from some bump in the road outside of Fresno. What do you expect? With its powerful technologies and ideological purity, the circle has a corrosive effect on individuals, corporate culture, and the very nature of society and democracy. In his previous book, Dave Eggers explored post-Katrina America and its broken economy. As I read about May's fate in the circle, I kept thinking about the ancient insight of the Desert Father Anthony the Great of the 4th century. He wrote, A time is coming when men will go mad, and when they see someone who was not mad, they will attack him, saying, You were mad. You are not like us. Well, at least we have a sure guide with Dave Eggers. In addition, I recommend the recent works by Jerron Lanier and Yevgeny Morozov. The author, Dave Eggers, the title of the novel, The Circle. For movies this week, I review a title called Som, S-O-M-M, from 2012. Anyone can claim to be a sommelier, but precious few wine stewards have earned what's called the Master Sommelier Diploma. That rare distinction is beyond the introductory, the certified, and the advanced certifications. The MS was introduced in 1969, and since then, only about 200 people have earned the coveted distinction. This documentary film could have been so much better, but it's still fun to watch, as it follows four young men who study for and then take the Master Sommelier exam a three-day test that covers theory, service, and then the dreaded blind tasting 
of three reds and three whites, while four master sommeliers stare at you across the table. In pass or fail, they never tell you what the wines were. In their group, only six of fifty people passed the test. Fermented grape juice was never so complicated. I watched this movie on Netflix streaming. Once again, from 2012, a documentary film called Som, S-O-M-M. And for the beginning of Lent in Ash Wednesday, we've posted a poem by Edwina Gately called Beginnings. Beginnings, just tiny stirrings which disturb our even surface prodding us into new and different shapes, claiming their place on our horizons, stretching us where we would not go, yet we must. Driven by life forces deeper than our dreams, we dare to rise and grasp towards the new young thing, not yet born, but insistent, like a tight seed bursting for life, carrying within it all the power of a woman's birthing thrust. Beginnings by Edwina Gately Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, March the 9th, 2014, the first Sunday in Lent. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.